Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Dear friends, welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Thank you for joining me again today as we study an inspiring topic that will encourage us to be medical missionaries. The wonderful relationship between Elisha and the Shunammite woman is exemplary. And the way Elisha blessed her is also a powerful testimony to a God of love and care for his children. I'm glad to be able to provide you with compelling monthly messages that will help you prepare for the coming of Christ. And I hope today's message will inspire you with practical things you can do in ministry for the Lord in these last days. Before we begin, let me say that I hope you are receiving our weekday prophetic intelligence briefings, which keep you informed of the little news items you might have missed cast in their prophetic context. We send them by email and also post links on Facebook and Twitter. I hope you enjoy them. And if you're not receiving them, please send us your email address or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Also, if you haven't already, please order our extremely interesting and compelling 12-part DVD series entitled Prophetic Secrets of the New World Order. You can order it from our Virginia office by calling 540-672-3553. Or, if you live in Australia, by contacting Highwood Health Retreat at 03-5963-7000. If you live in New Zealand, email me at hmayer at ktfministry.org, that's hmayer at ktfministry.org, or through our website, and I will give you the information you need to order them from within New Zealand. All others should uh, contact our office in Virginia. Lastly, if you're able to help us with renovations at either Highwood Health Retreat or Amaru Water Gardens Health Retreat, please let us know. We're looking for skilled volunteers in the building trades that would be able to spend a few weeks or a couple of months or whatever in either or both places. At Highwood, we have now started renovations on our school building in preparation for our medical missionary training course, and we pray that sometime soon we will be able to start renovations at Amaru so that we can start the 10-day guest program there. As we begin our study today, let us bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Father in heaven, today we invite your Holy Spirit to speak to us as we study together the very important story in the Old Testament. We're so grateful for the Bible, which gives us guidance in these last days. We see so many things going on that fulfill Bible prophecy, And we want to know how to live and how to minister in this world of chaos and confusion. So we invite your presence as we open Holy Scripture. In Jesus' name, Amen. As we study the life of Elisha, let us look at Elisha's next medical missionary project. It's found beginning in 2 Kings 4, verse 8. This one shows the importance of relationships in medical missionary work. When you bless others, it comes back to you. And in fact, it goes both ways. This is the great spirit of giving as well. When you give, you shall receive. 
And it's vitally important that we understand this in the last days, because when you cannot buy or sell, God's plan is for his church members to be medical missionaries for their own survival as well as for the salvation of souls. Let us read verse 8. And it fell on a day that Elisha passed to Shunem, where was a great woman, and she constrained him to eat bread. And so it was that as oft as he passed by, he turned in thither to eat bread. Shunem lay along the road in the region where Elisha often traveled. It was of the tribe of Issachar. The name Shunem means two resting places. How fitting that it became the place for God's prophet to rest often. Elisha could stop there on his way to and from the college at Mount Carmel, or on his visits to the various towns and villages in the region where he would work for the restoration of the true worship of God. He had his circuits and places where he needed to go that required his personal attention, and Shunem was in a place where he passed by often. Shunem also lay on the edge of a rich and fertile grain-growing region, and it provided the resources to make good agricultural business. Transportation from there was easy, and it was a regional trading center that offered support to those who lived there. It was ideally situated. This great woman was a wealthy and influential woman. She had connections and was highly respected in Shunem. Her husband's reputation was benefited by her character and spirit of service. She often entertained travelers and strangers as they passed by their home, as well as her husband's business contacts. This Shunammite family owned lands and had quite an estate with employees and servants. Their business benefited by the excellent agricultural land in the area around Shunem. Perhaps they had vineyards and orchards as well as fields of grain. They would probably sell their products to make to neighboring towns such as Nain and Jezreel, as well as in the markets in Shunem. This great woman, as the Bible calls her, kept a good house and had a big heart, and therefore it was a busy place much of the time. Elisha was a frequent traveler. It seemed he was always on the move from one place to another. And when this Shunammite woman saw Elisha pass by a few times, she decided that she would, as was often her custom, invite him in to be a guest of her hospitality. And though he was famous, Elisha was a humble man. And not having a wife by his side, he knew that he was not the most refined guest. So he hesitated to associate with those who were of the wealthier class. Besides, he was loath to be troublesome to anyone. At first he declined her offer, but she persisted. She urged him to sit at her table, and finally, with great difficulty, she constrained the prophet of the Lord to come dine in her home. This forged a bond between them, and it turned out that she fed him often. For Elisha's roots to and from the schools of the prophets in Mount Carmel, Gilgal, and Jericho, his visits to Jezreel, along with other places where he would go, would cause him to pass by often. Obviously, she was a good cook, and no doubt Elisha, who was unmarried, enjoyed it very much. Though he lived in Samaria, he did not have a place to call home that had a warm hearth and a loving wife to tend to his needs. So he made a habit, no doubt, of timing his travels so that he could stop in and have a meal with this woman and her husband along the way. 
This reminds me of Jesus in his adopted home in Bethany with Mary, Martha, Martha, and Lazarus. He often went there to rest from his incessant labors and travels and would find comfort, peace, and tranquility, as well as a good meal and a good bed. I happen to know something about the rigors of travel. It's not easy. In fact, there are regular inconveniences and difficulties along the way. And though it has long ago lost its glamour, I must still travel in the course of my ministry, similar to Elisha. But there are some places in the world where I know I can get a good meal, with some of my favorite food and a comfortable bed to sleep in, and a warm shower with the added bonus of the friendship of a godly woman who loves to extend her hospitality. Their husbands often collect me at the airport and bring me to their home. I know people like that in places like Australia, England, Europe, Scandinavia, and throughout the United States. Each place has its own special fellowship, aromas, flavors, culture, and style. But all of them are places I know I can find rest, strength, and encouragement in my work. Often when I stay in the home of good friends, I am warmed by their fellowship and their communion is very special indeed. This is the way it was between Elijah and this woman of Shunem. Maybe you have experienced such fellowship too, perhaps. The warm welcome and kind hospitality, unaffected by personal agendas or respective persons, is the kind of hospitality that's always received with gratitude. Elisha made friends easily wherever he went. So it was that he and this childless family became the best of friends. Keep in mind that the spiritual state of Israel was still quite bad. It had only been a few years since the confrontation on Mount Carmel, and God had a lot of work to do to bring Israel around to follow God's way again. God was using Elisha to do this work, but it wasn't going to happen overnight. But even in these conditions, Elisha still made many friends. The Shunammite woman realized that Elisha was coming more often to her home. She sensed that Elisha was a holy man, a prophet of God. So pleased was she with his visits, and so much did she desire to have him in their home that she wanted to do more for him. And as she considered this, she thought that it would bring her a greater blessing of the Lord if she would open her home to his prophet more fully. But she didn't have a prophet's room, a place appropriate for him to sleep and study. She probably realized her home was not suitable for his privacy or for the weary servant of the Lord to get some quiet rest. After all, there were no doubt people coming and going all the time, whether employees, visitors, or business contacts, and lots of other activity. She knew that Elisha would need a private place where he could call his own and where he could pray and study and contemplate the things of God and the things needing to be accomplished in Israel. He also had to prepare materials for his work with the schools of the prophets. Her home was on one story and did not have accommodation that would satisfy the needs of such a man of God. So she thought that if she were to organize a place of his own at her home, he would stay longer, and as a result, her household and her husband's business would be blessed as, and prosper for his sake, and all who came under their roof edified by his pious instructions and example. But this woman was wise and would not lay out money or build or bring him into her home without her husband's consent. After all, he was the head of her household, and she loved him and wanted his approval. So she spoke with her husband. Let's read verse 9. Behold, 
Now I perceive that this is an holy man of God, which passes by us continually, she said. This woman said it this way, so as to suggest that their hospitalities would be well repaid. Perhaps she heard about the woman of Zarephath and how well her hospitality to Elijah, Elisha's predecessor, was repaid. If there was a blessing to be had, she wanted it. Friends, if we are ever given the opportunity to be blessed, it's important that we go after it. Whether it is church, prayer meeting, family worship, or whatever spiritual blessing is placed in our path or within our opportunity to have the blessing, we need to avail ourselves of it. Often we find ourselves too busy and the blessing passes us by, unnoticed and unregarded. My friends, that's a tragedy. Take advantage of every opportunity to be blessed by the Lord. If you are Christ's, he longs to bless you and gives you many opportunities to gain that blessing. Obviously, the encouragement and fellowship in this woman's home went both ways. As Elisha would sit in her home, he would bring to this woman and her husband spiritual encouragement, instruction, and wisdom. You know how that is, perhaps. When you're in the presence of someone that has the Spirit of God in them, you can sense it. You are refreshed by it. You are encouraged by it. And it is such a contrast from the regular people of the world that are in your life. You feel blessed when you have been in their presence. Oh, do I know some people like that. I want to be that kind of person, don't you? I want to be the person that people sense a special presence from the Holy Spirit. I want to live in the presence of God so that my words and actions are seasoned by His grace. That way, anyone who's with me will be blessed by just being together. That's what God intends for His last generation. Recently, I showed you Isaiah 60, in which there's going to be gross darkness in the world in the last days. We are already well into that now, aren't we? At the same time, God's Holy Spirit will be poured out on His people, and the attention of those in darkness will be drawn to them. This takes time, my friends, to develop the Spirit of God in your soul so that you can be that kind of person. It cannot be done overnight. So the woman made a suggestion to her husband that they, they together thought was reasonable. Verse 10. Let us make a little chamber, I pray thee, on the wall, and let us set for him there a bed and a table and a stool and a candlestick, and it shall be when he cometh to us that he shall turn in thither. The room would have steps up to the level of the room, and though it would be small, it would be adequate for the prophet and his servant Gehazi. It would not be built at great cost, and would have furnishings suited to the work and comfort of the prophet. So they made a little chamber for Elisha. I can imagine her husband bringing some of his workmen to erect a little room with a door and a window or two. They stuccoed the walls inside and out. They put in the bed, the table, the stool, and the candlestick. It was a lovely little spot. And any time he would pass by, he would stop in for a meal and a quiet rest in his little chamber. Verse 11 says, And it fell on a day that he came thither, and he turned into the chamber and lay there. Can you imagine the woman eagerly taking Elisha to the little chamber for the first time? What a surprise to Elisha. He had no idea. But now here was a little place that he could sleep and refresh after many days or weeks of travel hither and thither. He knew the heavy pressures 
of a full-on ministry and was busy teaching in the schools of the prophets. He was counseling the leaders of the schools, the families in the son, of the sons of the prophets, as well as regional and national leaders and a host of other people. He was traveling constantly and it was not a very enviable life. But now Elisha had a place to stop for the night and even a few days of relaxation and study. That's something very much needed and appreciated by any travel-weary servant of the Lord. It's a huge blessing to the itinerant preacher. Elisha seemed highly pleased with these arrangements and made this little room his special home. As Elisha was so blessed by the woman's kindness, he decided that he must do something for her out of his grateful heart. And those who receive nice courtesies should think how to repay them. This is in harmony with the Spirit of God. And this spirit of giving is cyclical and is repeated back and forth among the children of God over and over again. Jesus himself said in Luke 6.38, Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. This spirit of giving is a heavenly gift. Selfishness never benefits anyone, especially the one who is selfish. But when we give, it brings an immediate blessing to us in the satisfaction of helping someone else, whether a friend or a stranger. But it also brings a further blessing later on when that gift is returned to us in some way by the blessing of the Lord. The loving care of the Shunammite woman overwhelmed Elisha. He was exceedingly pleased with the quiet apartment she and her husband had made for him, and his heart yearned to do something in return. Elisha pointed out to her how grateful he was for her hospitality and for what she had done for him. After all, no man of God can be ungrateful or sponge on those that are generous to them. Verse 12 says, And he said to Gehazi his servant, Call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him, and he said unto him, Say unto her now, Behold, thou hast been careful for us with all this care. What is to be done for thee? Wouldst thou be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the host? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. Elisha magnified her kindness by his words, as those who are humble are accustomed to do. And to her, wealthy as she was, whatever she did for him was as if it were nothing. That little room cost her and her husband little compared to what they possessed. But she did it for him out of love for God and the prophet. Elisha, on the other hand, did not think that he deserved her kindness, perhaps. But he was nevertheless very grateful to her. He offered uh, to use his influence with the king or the captain of the guard. Perhaps her husband might desire some important civil position or a military post. After all, Elisha was connected to these people. Perhaps she had a complaint that Elisha could solve by speaking to these high powers. How can I be of service to you? He asked in so many words. But she declined his offer with no request. I dwell among my own people, she said. We are well off as we are and have no desire for preferment or special treatment. She was content. Her husband was content to continue with his business. Why should those who live comfortably among their own people covet to live delicately in king's palaces. There would come a time, some years later, when she would need to speak to the king, but not now.
Contentment is a key principle of the life of a godly person. If you're content, others can see it in your countenance. And if you're not content, you'll manifest it in many ways that you aren't even aware of, perhaps. But it will be seen. Elisha would not be dissuaded by her contented response. He was prepared to ask the court of heaven for a favor for this woman, if need be, and this would be vastly better than anything an earthly king could do. So in the privacy of their room, he asked his servant Gehazi what he thought they could do for this woman who had done so much for them. Verse 14, And he said, What then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, Verily, she hath no child, and her husband is old. Gehazi had noticed that she had no son of her own, and children were considered to be a blessing from the Lord. Yet this woman did not complain. She was not discontented. She seemed reconciled to the fact that her life would be without children. But Gehazi also recognized that her husband was old and that it was very unlikely that she would have have any children by him. The point being that if Elisha could, as a favor from God, bless her with the promise of a child and remove that which at present was her only grievance, her one pain, it would be a suitable repayment for her kind hospitality. After all, having no children was a reproach in the land of Israel in those days. But this was a kindness that Elisha could do for her that would be most welcome and most suited to her necessities and which would heal her pain. Elisha said, call her, verse 15. And when he called her, she stood in the door. The woman was humble and modest and as was her customary behavior. She did not know what to expect. She did not come into his room. To do so would have been immodest of her. She stood in the door. Verse 16. And he said, About this season, according to the time of life, thou shalt embrace a son. That promise took her by surprise. How can this be? I'm getting on in years and my husband is old. How is it that I can bear a son? She begged the prophet not to deceive her or flatter her. Verse 16 continues, And she said, Nay, my lord, thou man of God, do not lie unto thine handmaid. Be serious. Don't jest with me or deceive me. But Elisha was serious, and she conceived and bare a son at that season that Elisha had said to her, according to the time of life. This confirmed more than ever to her that Elisha was indeed a man of God. God built up her family after she had built the prophet a chamber. She had received the prophet in her home and extended her hospitality to him. She did not receive Elisha's offer of a royal reward, but instead she received a prophet's reward, a signal mercy in answer to prayer. Elisha used the same principle that Elijah used with the widow of Zarephath. She was to make him a little cake first, but God blessed her abundantly above all that she could ask or think. This woman first blessed the prophet, and now Elisha blessed her above all that she could ask or think. Ever after, we may assume that Elijah was doubly welcome to the home of this Shunammite. She could never do so much for him as he had done for her, even though she started out by doing far more for him than he had ever done for her. Thus is the cycle of giving and receiving. We are here on this earth, my friends, to benefit each other. We are here to be a blessing to each other. And no doubt the child was very dear to the prophet, 
who perhaps loved him as his own son. He was the son of his earnest prayers, for Elisha was a praying man and a man of strong faith, as Elijah had been. The son was also very dear to his parents, for he was the son of her old age. He was their joy and rejoicing. He was their heir to their estates, and now they had a child on which to bestow the spiritual blessings of the family as well, for he was the son of their birthright. Some years went by. Now this story gets very interesting. No doubt Elisha came and went many times and enjoyed seeing her son around the home, and as the child got older and more capable, he was given tasks to do that would strengthen his powers. Some of them were in the field working with his father's servants. Every Jewish child was taught to work in practical labor, and this child was no exception. Though we don't know how old he was, we do know that he was old enough to help his father in the field. Yet he wasn't so grown up that he could not sit on his mother's knees. Let us read verse 18 and onward. And when the child was grown, it fell on a day that he went out to his father, to the reapers. And he said unto his father, My head, my head. And he said to to a lad, Carry him to his mother. The sun was hot that day, and apparently the young man had some form of heat stroke or, or some other physical crisis. His father did not suspect any real danger in his son's distress, but asked one of his servants to carry him to his mother, expecting that when he arrived home that evening, his son would have taken rest and would have been refreshed and well again. But that was not to be. The sickness, whatever it was, was fatal. The lad was well in in the morning and dead by noon. All his mother's tender care could not keep him alive, and when he had taken him and brought him to his mother. He sat on her knees till noon and died, the scripture says. What a tragedy. Here was a child, a young child, who was the son of promise, meant to bless them in their old age. He was the son of prayer, intended to reward the Shunammite for her kindness to the prophet, and now he was dead. What was this woman to do in her grief? Her first thought was of Elisha. Certainly she would have heard what would have happened to the boy in Zarephath when Elijah raised him from the dead for that Gentile woman. Wouldn't God do the same for her in her distress? After all, a double portion of the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. Faith grasps the hand of God, and instead of making preparation for his burial, she makes preparations for his resurrection. Verse 21 tells us that she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door upon him and went out. What faith, my friends, what confidence in God. This woman actually believed that God would raise her son from the dead and acted in that way. Her son had been raised from her womb, which was as good as dead. So why can't God raise her son back to life? And she expects that the prophet Elisha will stand by her side and intercede with God in prayer for the child. Friends, this is true faith. It is the expectation that God will do what we ask of him according to his will. God, who wrought a good work for her in giving her the child through the prophet's promise, would not frustrate it by taking him away. This was a test of her faith. And friends, often providence tests our faith in ways we often do not expect. But we gain experience in the things of God by going through crisis and trouble. This tempers and strengthens our faith and matures our experience with God. 
We learn to trust him for the outcome. And this kind of faith is the sort of experience God wants all of us to have, especially in these last days. I'm thrilled when I think about it. We can have full confidence that the God of heaven can do for us what needs to be done if we pray and if we trust fully in his promise. This Shunammite had full confidence in God's goodness and was ready to believe that he who had so soon taken away that which he had given would restore what he had now taken away. Hebrews 11.35 says that by faith, women receive their dead raised to life again. And she certainly exercised that faith in the unseen realities. The Shunammite woman only wanted to go to the man of God, Elisha. But she dare not go without asking her husband. So she called unto her husband in verse 22 and said, Send me, I pray thee, one of the young men and one of the asses, that I may run to the man of God and come again. She did not want to tell her husband about the death of their son, lest her faith be discouraged. Her husband might try to dissuade her from troubling the prophet. So she left him a little in the dark about that. Her husband at first questioned her. Wherefore wilt thou go to him today? It's neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, It shall be well. The Shunammite woman would attend the feast of the Lord wherever Elisha presided to hear the word, to join in prayer and praises. This he was accustomed to. So it surprised him that she wanted to go to the prophet at this time and in such a rush. Why? he asked. Why wilt thou go today? She did not give him the reason, but assured him that all would be well, as if to say, you will yourself recognize that all will be well. No doubt her husband was occupied with his business and did not have time to question her further. Or perhaps he sensed from her determined posture that he had better not question her further. These two had such mutual respect and love for each other that she would not venture without his permission, and he was kind enough not to pressure her for the real reasons. Perhaps he thought she was planning some special event for him, or that she was doing something that would later he would later understand and appreciate. In any case, she did not tell him her business. You know how husbands and wives sometimes are with each other. He trusted her and felt that she should do whatever was on her heart. Notice that her faith is obvious to us because she weaves it into her words. It shall be well. Verse 24. Then she saddled the ass and said unto her servant, Drive and go forward. Slack not thy riding for me, except I bid thee. And off to Mount Carmel they went. Why was Elisha on Mount Carmel? Well, Elisha was ministering at one of the schools of the prophets that was there. It was not so far from Shunem. He would go there often, and she knew he was there at that time. Verse 25 and 26. So she went and came unto the man of God to Mount Carmel. And it came to pass, when the man of God saw her afar off, that he said to Gehazi, his servant, Behold, yonder is that Shunammite. Run now, I pray thee, to meet her. And say unto her, Is it well with thee? Is it well with thy husband? Is it well with the child? And when Gehazi asked her these questions, she simply answered, It is well. To many people it appears as though this woman lied to Gehazi. After all, her child back home was dead. Yet she says that all is well with herself and with her husband and with the child. 
She had told her husband essentially the same thing. This was not a lie. She believed that all truly would be well if she can just get to the prophet. She had grasped faith firmly as if her son's resurrection was already a fact. And friends, that's the way true faith is. God gives a promise and we accept it as fact even if we cannot see it right now. She tells Gehazi that all is well implying that in her heart she trusted God to restore her child. What a lesson of faith! Gehazi is not the man she has come to see anyway, and so she put him off with a vague statement such as this. Her faith in the prophet of God is very strong, and if the prophet acts quickly, her son would live. Would to God that all of his people in the last days were filled with this kind of faith in the prophet— Tragically today, faith in the prophet is sorely lacking. There's even a a determined neglect of the prophet, almost a zealous resistance in many places, and a willingness to justify the things the prophet has warned against. Many have turned away from the prophet of the Lord, and this causes the church to languish. What the Lord would have done for his people had they acted in faith on the words and instructions of the prophet cannot be done under those circumstances." And the consequences are pretty serious. When we spurn the prophet, we're spurning the Holy Spirit. And when we spurn the Holy Spirit, we turn our backs on God and he cannot bless us with the latter rain. How are we ever going to navigate the unique and difficult circumstances of our time if we don't have the Holy Spirit to guide us? How can we have the power of God that has been promised to us if we neglect to know and understand the edifying instructions of God's prophets? Oh, my friends, let us never forget that we are living in a time of great importance. We're at the most crucial moments in history. We need the wisdom and guidance of the prophet like never before. A lack of faith in the prophet indicates rebellion to the Lord, and it is the last prophetic marker before the time of trouble. Listen to this from Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 48. There will be a hatred kindled against the testimonies which is satanic. The workings of Satan will be to unsettle the faith of the churches in them for this reason. Satan cannot have so clear a track to bring in his deceptions and bind up souls in his delusions if the warnings and reproofs of the council and councils of the Spirit of God are heeded. And now this one from Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 78. The very last deception of Satan will be to make of none effect the testimony of the Spirit of God. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Proverbs 29.18 Satan will work ingeniously, in different ways and through different agencies, to unsettle the confidence of God's remnant people in the true testimony. The Shunammite woman's faith was based on reason, not emotions. Why would God give her a child only to take him away? That didn't make sense to her. She thought that if she could catch up with Elisha, he would know what to do. So she made haste and drove the ass as fast as his feet would go and came to Mount Carmel. Up the mountain she went, pressing onward with her servant and an obedient donkey until she was in Elisha's presence. She dismounted and fell on her knees and grabbed his feet. Now for the first time she reveals her grief and sorrow. She begs the prophet to help her. Obviously this good woman knew how to control her heartfelt emotions. 
Now they poured out at the feet of the prophet. Gehazi thought she was a bit crazy and stepped forward to thrust her away. But Elisha said, Let her alone, for her soul is vexed within her, and the Lord hath hid it from me, and hath not told me. God does not always tell his prophets everything they would need to know or like to know. Sometimes he lets them find out in other ways. After all, the woman was quite ready to tell him her sorrow and beg for his help. Notice what she said to the prophet. Verse 28. Did I desire a son from my Lord? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? In other words, she did not ask for a son. She was content without him, but it was Elisha the prophet that had promised her a son. She had been settled in her mind that she would not have children. And the word of the Lord came upon her, and she had borne a son. She did not plead for a son like Rachel. Rachel said to Isaac, Give me a son or else I die. She did not weep for a son like Hannah. Her son was not the result of her proposal. It was the prophet's promise. God gave her a son without asking for him, and now he was gone. How could this be? The woman had been completely dependent on the prophet's word for the promise, and now she was completely dependent on the prophet's actions to solve the problem. But her faith would not let go of the idea that God had purposed to give her a son, and now that she, he was testing her faith, she was not going to let go of God in this severe trial. Elisha realized that something was terribly wrong. He commanded Gehazi in verse 29 to gird up thy loins and take my staff in thine hand and go thy way. If thou meet any man, salute him not. And if any salute thee, answer him not again and lay my staff on the face of the child. But this was not enough for this woman. She wanted Elisha to come to her home to deal with this. Perhaps she didn't trust Gehazi. Perhaps she felt that none would do except the prophet himself. Perhaps Elisha wanted to test her faith a bit and understand her burden more completely. Whatever the case, she was not happy with this solution. It seemed inappropriate to her. She wanted none other than the prophet of the Lord to minister to her son. After all, he lay on the prophet's own bed. The woman said to Elisha in verse 30, As the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And he arose and followed her. She had no great expectation from the staff. She was not superstitious. She knew that the only way her son would be restored was by the earnest prayers of the prophet. After all, there was nothing that would prevent the prophet from coming himself. Gehazi did what he was told and went ahead of them and laid the staff on the child. But verse 31 says, There was neither voice nor hearing. Wherefore he went again to meet him and told him, saying, The child is not awake. This confirmed the woman's intuition that she needed the prophet present and accounted for. The child was not awake. This also encouraged her because it intimated that he would be resurrected. It may be that God also did not perform a miracle by Gehazi with Elisha's staff because he wanted to strengthen faith in his prophet. If such a powerful miracle was to be done, Elisha must apply himself closely to the case. He did not want people to get the impression that God's power is trivial, as some ministers treat it, or as if it is to be commanded and guided at the beck and call of human will. This only brings a sort of tarnished glory to the human agent, which offends God and works against his intentions. 
But think about this. Many people today are like that dead child. You can lay the word in front of their faces like Gehazi laid the staff on the boy's face, and yet they're not awaked. They cannot understand the word. There is neither voice nor hearing. They are as if dead. No one can change the heart, only Christ. The human agent brings the word, but it is Christ that animates the heart and changes it from a stony heart to a spiritual heart. He gives power to the word. The letter by itself kills. It is the spirit united with the word that brings life. The dry bones do not respond merely by prophesying. There must be breath of life from the Spirit of God to enter into them in order to come to life. See Ezekiel 37, verses 4 and 5. Verse 32 and 33. And when Elijah was come into the house, behold, the child was dead and laid upon his bed. He went in, therefore, and shut the door upon them twain and prayed unto the Lord. Did you notice that not even Gehazi was in the room with Elisha and the child? He did not want there to be any confusion over what God would do, nor did he want anyone to see what he would do under the power of God. Gehazi had been unsuccessful in laying his staff on the child to revive him. This was reason enough to leave Gehazi out of this miracle. Perhaps his lack of faith would prevent the Lord from working, and Elisha could not risk that. Elisha was used to prayer. He was a man of prayer like his predecessor, Elijah. No one can see the hand of God without prayer, and Elisha needed a miracle now. So he prayed earnestly as he had seen Elijah pray. Friends, we cannot live without prayer. We must become men and women of prayer if we are ever going to succeed in victory over the enemy. Especially in these last days, we must pray earnestly that our sins may be forgiven and overcome. Nor can our children live without our intercessory prayer for them. Just as this child was dead, so many of our own children suffer from the consequences of sin. We had better pray for them. Elisha did what he knew Elijah had done. He had heard the story many times, but would God now answer his prayer? He pled with God to revive the child. Verse 34 says, And he went up and lay upon the child and put his mouth upon his mouth and his eyes upon his eyes and his hands upon his hands. And he stretched himself upon the child and the flesh of the child waxed warm. Please think about this carefully. Notice what Elisha did. He put his mouth to the child's mouth as if in the name of God he would breathe life back into him again. He put his eyes to the child's eyes as if to bring the light back of life back into them again, and he put his hands to his hands as if to strengthen them with strength once again. All the while he fervently prayed for the child's recovery. Friends, here's the lesson. If you want to win souls and if you want to bring them to eternal life, you must get very close to them. We cannot win souls without personal labor for them and in close contact with them. The Spirit of God longs to reach them through you and me. Get close to them. Enter into their sufferings and minister to their needs. Dead souls will never revive unless they are warmed by your personal interest and love for them. Even after these first efforts, the child did not revive. Only his body became warm. Elisha returned to the main part of the house and walked in the house to and fro, no doubt he was praying earnestly that God would restore the life of this child and restore the happiness of the family. 
Then he went up again the second time and stretched himself upon the child, and the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Here is an important lesson, my friends. Medical missionaries must pray, but God doesn't always answer their prayers the first time. They must be persistent. They must not give up. Remember that we must always add prayer to all the natural methods that we use in our medical missionary work. Elisha may have realized that he may have made a mistake in sending Gehazi on ahead of him with his staff. It did nothing for the child, and now he felt the heavy burden of responsibility upon him for this poor dead child, as well as his mother and father. He earnestly pled with God that he would hear him and answer his prayer. Do you think that we have to be persistent in prayer? Why doesn't God always answer us the first time we ask? It's because God wants us to really want the thing we're praying for. And the more we pray for it, the more earnestly we long for the answer to our prayer. And the more earnestly we long for the answer, the more closely we are bonded to heaven when he does finally answer. We are to yearn for the blessings of the Lord. He wants us to strengthen our faith by our prayers and earnest pleas for help. There's no shortage of desire on God's part to answer our prayers, but God is developing within us a heap of faith and confidence in him through prayer. Elisha is an example to us in the last days of the kind of prayer life that is needed. He had learned from Elijah how to pray earnestly, persistently, and passionately. We too must learn how to pray for the intercession of the Holy Spirit in our daily lives and ministry for the Lord. Elisha had been encouraged by the fact that the boy's body got warm after he had been with him the first time. And so after a time, he went back upstairs to his little chamber and stretched himself on the child again as before, still pleading with God to revive him and restore him to his family. This time, the child sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Friends, medical missionaries often see progress at first. The body becomes warm, so to speak, and they redouble their efforts until they achieve healing. It works this way spiritually, too. There is at first a little interest. Then, as more earnest prayer and effort is applied, the soul eventually surrenders to Christ. Don't give up the first time, my friends. What do you think the Shunammite woman was doing while Elisha was with her son? Do you think she was praying for a miracle? I think so. When Elisha came down the first time, she no doubt earnestly asked him what had happened. He surely explained to her that the child's body had become warm, but that he had not been revived. She redoubled her efforts, too, in prayer as Elisha went back upstairs to pray again and lay himself the second time on the child. When the child revived, Elisha called Gehazi, verse 37, and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came in unto him, he said, Take up thy son. The Shunammite woman's joy knew no bounds. The drama in her house that day started off stressful, but in the end made her heart glad. Verse 37. And when she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground and took up her son and went out. Friends, I don't know about you, but if that happened to my son, I'm sure I'd feel much the same way. The woman could now understand something of what it's like to lose a child in death the separation, the loneliness, the pain. God would also go through the same experience in a far more infinite way in sending Christ to die for the lost. But he would raise the dead to life. 
He would raise the spiritually dead to spiritual life and all would be well, just as the woman had said. She now understood something about the love of God for the lost. Her faith was strong in God and he had rewarded her for it. But the story doesn't end there. Some years went by. God had to deal with the continued wickedness of Israel during the time of Elisha. He brought their enemies to plague them, but Israel remained entrenched in the worship of nature gods. All during this time, Elisha remained faithful to the Lord and kept up the work of educating the sons of the prophets in the schools of the prophets. He faithfully warned the people of the judgments of God upon the land as a result of their backsliding. But one day, Elisha traveled past by the little home in Shunem. There he entered in to the great pleasure of his hosts. They were happy to see him and loved to hear his encouraging words of spiritual concern and interest. No doubt their young boy helped him settle in his little prophet's room upstairs on the wall. But something was different. Elisha seemed concerned and troubled. What was it? His face seemed foreboding and serious. Elisha had purposely come to give them warning and instruction. Israel's continued wickedness, even after the confrontation with Elijah on Mount Carmel, had not worked the reformation that was needed. So God had told Elisha that he would bring another famine on the land, this time a much longer one. The fruitful land of Canaan would again be turned into barrenness for the wickedness of them that dwell therein. Psalm 107.34 If one judgment seasoned with mercy doesn't bring his people to repentance, God will send another. If that judgment doesn't turn their hearts back to God, he will send still another. With each successive round, it is seasoned with less mercy and lasts for a longer period. If his people still walk contrary to his will, he heats the furnace even hotter. This famine was not going to be only three years like during the time of Ahab. This time it was to be seven years. Elisha felt that he must warn this little family who had been so kind to him and to whom God had shown such signal mercy. It happens that her husband is never spoken of again, so perhaps we are to understand that he had died. And while this family was not going to be fed by a miracle like the widow of Zarephath, Elisha warned her that the famine was coming and that she should take action to look after herself. She was wealthy and had resources on which to sustain herself. So perhaps as they sat around the dinner table that evening, Elisha broke the news. We read this in 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 1. Arise and go thou and thine household, he said, and sojourn wheresoever thou canst sojourn. For the Lord hath called for a famine, and it shall also come upon the land seven years. Elisha wanted to protect this woman and her son from what was coming upon the nation. When we foresee an evil, as we most certainly do in these last days, we must take action to hide ourselves from it before it comes so that we can survive the evil and prosper. That means that you'll bring your life into harmony with the counsel of the prophet of the Lord. And here's something else, my friends. Those who are paying attention to the prophet receive the warning. Not those who ignore and turn their backs on the prophet. We are not told of others that Elisha warned, only the Shunammite family. Verse 2. And the woman arose and did after the saying of the man of God. 
And she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. Apparently she found a comfortable place to live during the famine over there. This was a pagan nation, but it afforded her an opportunity to ride out the famine away from its rigors. The Philistines had been subdued by Israel during the time of David, as you might recall, but not entirely rooted out, and now they were willing to have this woman among them. Apparently the famine was only in in the land of Israel, while the other nations around them had plenty. This shows us that it was God's hand that brought the famine. This was also true of the plagues that God brought upon Egypt during the time of Moses and Aaron. The plagues distinguished between the Egyptians and the Israelites. Keep in mind that God does not judge those as strongly if they do not know God or profess to know God. The sins of Israel were much more provoking to God than the sins of the other nations. Other countries had reigned when they had none. Other nations were free from locusts and caterpillars while Israel was eaten up with them. And when the famine was over, this woman returned to Shunem. She found that her properties had been taken over by another. She had to leave the land of the Philistines for she could not keep up the new moons and the Sabbaths as she used to do in Israel when she was around the schools of the prophets. No doubt Israel had not been keeping them due to their apostasy, but in Philistia there was no one to organize and lead them. Upon her return, she discovered that others now occupied her estate. Either it had been confiscated by the exchequer and reapportioned, seized by the king, or usurped in her absence by some of her neighbors. Perhaps the person left in charge of the management while she was gone had proved unfaithful and refused to return it to her. So she appealed to the king. That was her only recourse. Let's read verse 3. And it came to pass at the seven years' end that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines, and she went forth to cry unto the king for her house and for her land. She journeyed to Samaria. And when she arrived at the king's palace, she found Gehazi talking to him. The king had asked Gehazi a very interesting question. We read it in verse 4. And the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, I pray thee, all the great things that Elisha hath done. Apparently he was not as acquainted with Elijah as he should have been, and Gehazi happened to be there. So the king asked him about Elisha's miracles. Verse 5. And it came to pass, as he was telling the king how he had restored a dead body to life, that, behold, a woman whose son he had restored to life cried to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. Now think about this. Gehazi is no longer in the employment of Elisha. He's a leper. You may remember that Naaman's leprosy had come upon him for his greed and avarice. The wicked king should have known the miracles of Elisha, but because he had turned his back on God, Elisha's work was unknown to him. Now that the famine was over, he was more disposed to learn what the prophet had done. It was not forbidden to talk to lepers, only to avoid living with them or being around them a lot. Since there were no priests in the land, the king had appointed someone else to inspect them. Perhaps that is how he became acquainted with Gehazi. So Gehazi explained Elisha's work. Notice the timing. Just as Gehazi was telling the king about the resurrection of the boy, his mother and he arrived to plead for their land. 
Isn't God's providential timing wonderful? How often in your life have you had experiences like that? It was providence that ordered the circumstances of these events. And without the timing involved and the story seasoned with a miracle, the woman might not have been able to regain her properties. Gehazi's account made the king ready to believe the story and to grant the woman's request. The fact that the woman showed up just at that time gave the king opportunity to let him let them speak for themselves. And if the king appointed the property to himself, he was very generous in restoring it to her. And if someone else had possession of it, the king acted out of justice in returning it to her. God certainly cares for his children, doesn't he? He looks after those that are faithful to him and to those who support generously his work. And friends, if you want God's blessing, please sacrifice everything on the altar of God's forgiving mercy. Show sincere interest in God's word. Let God use you to support his messengers through your hospitality. Extend yourself to those who need your help. Draw close to those who are lost to help them find their way. Friends, there are so many lessons that can be learned from the life of Elisha. He was a medical missionary, and in raising the boy to life, he showed the ultimate and highest quality of medical missionary work. In these last days, every church member is to be a medical missionary. And when we are doing this work, we are cooperating with heaven. And may God bless you in winning souls, my friends. I pray that he will strengthen you and your ministry for every day of your life. Let us pray. Our loving Father in heaven, in Jesus' name we come to you and ask to make us medical missionaries. We want to use this method to reach many souls. Thank you for the example of Elisha. His faith and prayer were significant. Thank you for entrusting your people with simple means to help people who need our help. May we become more earnest in prayer, more effective in missionary work, and more engaged in soul-saving, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you for your support. The song you have just heard is called How Cheering is the Christian's Hope, sung by the Three Angels Chorale. 
It is recorded on a CD with other wonderful hymns called On Our Journey Home. This lovely CD is available from Keep the Faith Ministry, and if you would like to have a copy of this CD or copies for your friends and family, just send $16 each postpaid to U.S. addresses to cover the cost, and we will gladly send them. Please mention the On Our Journey Home CD. Our international listeners should send $20. The following is our monthly prophetic intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of Bible prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month, Trump will give the churches more power. Donald Trump wants the churches to have more power and pastors to speak more boldly. He has pledged to do it if he is elected president. They've taken a lot of power away from the church. I want to give that power back to the church. Christianity is really being chopped. Little by little, it's being taken away. I want pastors and ministers to be able to get up and speak on behalf of Christianity, Trump said. And they're afraid to do it right now because... They don't want to lose their tax-exempt status. We will take care of that. Trump believes that the federal government should have never taken away the power of the church. He's referring to the Johnson Amendment in which the U.S. tax code was altered so that tax-exempt organizations, like churches, would not be allowed to endorse or oppose political candidates. In public, he can be rough and around the edges, for sure, but his narrative is of a guy who gets things done, said David Brody of the CBN Brody File. His brand is accomplishment, and so when he says he's going to take care of the evangelicals and start winning again for Christianity, many people believe him at face value. It's a great Trump card to have in your political hip pocket. I'm a Christian. I'm a Protestant. I'm a Presbyterian. I think that Christianity, frankly, I think Christians in our country are not treated properly. The bill that was passed during the Lyndon Johnson era is horrible because I see churches where they're afraid to be outspoken because they don't want to lose their tax-exempt status. And I realize that it's one of those problems. I know people who want to endorse me, but they're afraid to endorse anybody because they don't want to get political. So essentially, they've taken a lot of power away from the church. I want to give power back to the church because the church has to have more power. Christianity is really being chopped. Little by little, it's being taken away. The dignitaries of church and state will unite to bribe, persuade, or compel all classes to honor the Sunday. The lack of divine authority will be supplied by oppressive enactments. Political corruption is destroying love of justice and regard for truth. And even in free America, rulers and legislators, in order to secure public favor, will yield to the popular demand for a law enforcing Sunday observance. Liberty of conscience, which has cost so great a sacrifice, will no longer be respected. In the soon coming conflict, we shall see exemplified the prophet's words, The dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation 12, 17. That's the Great Controversy, page 592. If Donald Trump is elected president of the United States, be prepared to see the final Sunday Law movement begin in earnest. Political support will embolden the churches and very rapidly the end-time image of the beast 
predicted in the Bible could unfold before our eyes exactly as predicted. This is no laughing matter. Those who scoff and ridicule these predictions will face their reality unprepared. Next, why is the FBI trying to force Apple to create an access to one iPhone? U.S. Magistrate Sherry Pym ruled that Apple must help the FBI break into the iPhone belonging to one of the killers in the San Bernardino, California massacre. Apple balked and said that privacy is more important than national security. It's a long-standing battle over encryption backdoors in Silicon Valley in which protecting customer data is a very high priority. The struggle goes all the way back to the time when Edward Snowden disclosed the extent to which technology and phone companies were aiding U.S. federal officials in spying on data being transmitted through their network. The demand of the FBI and the judge goes beyond that, however. The warrant asks for Apple to create a way to access data stored on a phone. Apple cooperated in turning over iCloud information, but that was updated long before the attacks. The FBI wants the more recent data that's stored on the phone. Since Snowden's revelations, Facebook, Apple, and Twitter have unilaterally said they will not create backdoors anymore. The reason is because it affects the confidence of the people in the privacy of their products. The backdoor is being requested by the FBI because iPhone users can set a security feature that only allows a certain number of tries to guess the correct passcode to unlock the phone before all the data on the phone is deleted, a security measure intended to keep important data out of the wrong hands. The FBI is looking for more information behind the San Bernardino mass murder and wants Apple to disable the security feature. Apple says that it requires a parallel operating system that would compromise security and open the phone to hackers, spies, and the federal government. Apple's Tim Cook posted a briefing on the company's website which said, we can find no precedent for an American company being forced to expose its customers to a greater risk of attack. For years, cryptologists and national security experts have been warning against weakening encryption. Doing so would hurt only the well-meaning and law-abiding citizens who rely on companies like Apple to protect their data. The court order creates some serious problems for iPhone users if it is implemented. If the U.S. government can make this demand, why can't the Chinese government or the Russian government? Also, the government would have a master key that they could use to access other phones. Who says the government would not misuse this power? For now, Apple and Google and other tech companies are starting to produce encryption that even they cannot break in an effort to answer demands for consumer privacy. The power to spy on citizens is essential to enforcing end-time global worship laws. This battle is being fought in other domains for now, but the outcome will certainly accelerate or decelerate the push toward the final crisis. Next, Australia may become a cashless society. The Australian Reserve Bank says that the Australian dollars may become only a digital form in the future. The RBA has flagged the end of the check, more or less, in the near future, and has been watching the rise of digital virtual currencies like Bitcoin. The central bank believes that there is a place for central bank-issued digital currency in Australia. However, with cybersecurity and cryptography issues still unresolved, 
the digital currency is still some time away. And though the RBA is not actively considering introducing a digital currency in Australia just yet, it is possible that the bank will produce and distribute such a currency in the future that would circulate parallel and on par to banknotes and coins. Just making the comment tells you that the bank is considering it and wants to check public reaction. That's the way banks often work. Central banks in other countries like the Bank of England, the Bank of Canada, the Bank of China are researching this possibility. Non-cash payments have soared and check payments in Australia have declined dramatically and are a dying payment form. And since Australia is to implement a new payment system by 2018, the use of checks will decline even further. Cash payments have also declined from 70% in 2007 to 47% in 2013. The less cash there is in circulation, the easier it will be to see the fulfillment of the prophecy that says that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name, Revelation 13, verse 17. Next, Britain negotiating to avoid a Brexit from the European Union. Berlin, and consequently the European Union leaders in Brussels, continue to urge London to remain in the European Union in spite of its previous threats and predictions of dire consequences if it should leave. David Cameron, the Prime Minister, negotiated concessions from the EU in order to be able to promote remaining in the EU during the run-up campaign before the British referendum June 23 on the topic. Cameron is a globalist and needed help from the Eurocrats in Brussels because without it, he cannot strongly encourage the nation to remain connected to the centralized and controlling center of the EU policies. Apparently, the summit choreography was stage-managed to be able to sell the meager results of the meeting to the British public as the negotiating success of their prime minister. All-night debates and hectic appearances of a seemingly stressed David Cameron suggesting tough power struggles over decisions that, in fact, had long since been made. Berlin is interested in keeping Britain in the EU primarily for military and economic reasons. Britain is one of the only three large militarily equipped countries in Europe. Germany and France need Britain's military might. So what were the meager concessions that Cameron eked out of the Eurocrats in Brussels? Restricted social benefits, such as child support for immigrant workers from other EU member countries, and a few symbolic concessions, like Britain does not have to strive for a deepening of the Union, which likely doesn't comply with the existing treaties and will likely be undermined in the future, once the referendum is concluded. That was all he really got. He did not get the special rights he was demanding, however, and Donald Tusk, president of the European Council, tried to limit the damage by saying that what concessions were extended to Britain did not apply to anyone else. But Germany vetoed it. After all, Germany wants those concessions too, in order to save a lot of money. Britain's threat to leave the euro gave Germany the opportunity it needed to piggyback its own issues with the EU. But in order to get the concessions, Britain must apply to the European Commission and the EU Council for approval of its measures, making the application of the concessions uncertain. All of that will take place after the referendum, leaving the British people with merely the hope 
of getting the concessions after they vote. Not a good prospect. Driven by Germany's strong interest in Great Britain remaining an EU member, Berlin found it very important to stage-manage the Brussels Brexit summit. In the run-up to the summit, it was often repeated that Prime Minister David Cameron could only successfully promote remaining in the EU if he can sell the largely ineffectual summit decisions to the British constituency as his great success. It is important that the summit choreography give Cameron the stage he needs to be able to plausibly reassure his constituents that he fought like a lion and was ultimately victorious. The ball is now in the court of London's pro-EU circles. It is vital to the globalists and the EU to avoid a Brexit. This would work against their aims of a supranational regional government in which all EU member nations are forced to comply with EU policies and controls. Bible prophecy says that all the world wandered after the beast, Revelation 13 verse 3, and that globalized religion is coming upon the whole planet. Revelation 13, verse 8. This cannot be achieved without a strong, centralized global government. A Brexit would undermine the trajectory of prophecy, yet the angels of heaven could allow it to slow down the process. Stay tuned. Next, Ebola and Zika, a taste of things to come. First, Ebola, then Zika, two diseases that have been known about for decades. Both official World Health Organization, or WHO, public health emergencies of international concern within as many years. World health officials were caught off guard for each of them in quick succession. Is this a taste of things to come? While there are not many similarities between the two diseases, there is yet something about the way the viruses spread or how they affected people that made the outbreaks more of a threat. Sudden changes in the way a disease agent works or is transmitted can make public health threats a pandemic problem and makes them difficult to predict. Even more worrying is the fact that with changing trends in human and animal migration, increasing urbanization, the density of megacities, the rise in antimicrobial resistance and climate change, such threats could become increasingly more common. Ebola became a global health concern because it changed its ability to spread. For many years, the disease mainly kept itself in isolated rural areas, but when it reached large urban areas, it quickly spread exponentially. Because Zika, on the other hand, was considered to be a relatively mild disease, there was less concern about its spreading. Once researchers documented its connection to microcephaly, it became a major concern. In seven decades since Zika was first discovered, such horrific complications have never before been seen. So it's unclear why there is a connection in Brazil. Part of the reason why there is such a sluggish response to global epidemics is because there is no profit in prevention, which suggests that if we want to avoid epidemics, we cannot expect industry to provide solutions. At least the WHO is developing a list of the worst eight diseases needing urgent attention. None on the list are particularly surprising, including Ebola and other hemorrhagic fevers like Marburg and Lassa fever, and a subset that includes Zika. Pathogens are not likely to act the same way in the future as in the past. Perhaps other pathogens will morph into global pandemics with deadly consequences as humanity tries to react to them 
once they are already tracking rapidly around the globe like Zika. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. Matthew 24, verse 7. And if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and wilt do that which is right in his sight, and wilt give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee which I have brought upon the Egyptians. For I am the Lord that healeth thee. Exodus 15, verse 26. Next, cash restrictions for Europe are coming. Austrians should have the constitutional right to use cash to protect their privacy, said Deputy Economy Minister Harad Maher. We don't want someone to be able to track digitally what we buy, eat, and drink, what books we read, and what movies we watch, Maher continued. The European Union is considering restricting the use of banknotes and coins and asked the European Commission to explore the need for appropriate restrictions on cash payments exceeding certain thresholds, and to engage with the European Central Bank to consider appropriate measures regarding high-denomination notes, in particular the 500-euro note by May 1. Maher was speaking on Austrian public radio to defend the use of cash. We will fight everywhere against rules, including caps on cash purchases, he added. EU finance ministers vowed at a meeting in Brussels to crack down on illicit cash movements, that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Revelation 13, verse 17. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now, you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.